Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. I'm over here talking about navigating life with an almost three-year-old and how I found myself this last week, my coping mechanism before responding or more so reacting to her, just close my eyes, take a deep breath. And we're just saying, come Lord Jesus, like as we walk through that moment, oh my goodness, toddlerhood is a challenge, irrational, and then extremely rational at times and very simple. I do believe toddlers are misunderstood. Uh, but hey, if you're a kid and you don't have to be a kid because I'm putting mine out as well. I'm putting my stocking out tonight. It's part of our phase into Christmas decorations and the stockings come out because tomorrow is St. Nicholas Feast Day. And if you know any of the stories and traditions behind St. Nicholas, who, by the way, you guys, he's Santa Claus. So make sure that you explain and connect the dots between Santa Claus and St. Nicholas all about how to celebrate St. Nicholas Feast Day on the podcast. We discussed it yesterday here on the show. So tons of tips and ideas. Really fun whether you have kids and nieces, you need to borrow a niece or nephew or, or godchild, do it for the day. But I was just telling someone earlier that I started celebrating some of these St. Nicholas Day traditions right when I got married. So it doesn't matter if you have kids or not. It's a great way to bring joy to the season and get to know better people such as St. Nicholas who will be diving into his story tomorrow here on his feast day, December 6th. Coming up, diving a little deeper into the Advent season, I'll explain what the symbolism of the Advent wreath is, whether you have it and it's a part of your tradition or not. We'll dive deeper into this topic of hope that's our theme this week in the first week of Advent. Also today, lots going on on the gender front from Catholic universities. You may know it. This is a famous one. St. Mary's College, an all-women's college right there in South Bend, Indiana, next to Notre Dame, school that you may know, may love. But right there, here is the school, and it is announced that they have a new policy that would allow for people who aren't women to go to an all-women's college. You can imagine the response. But what's interesting is the letter that was written by Bishop Rodas on this specific topic, urging the college to correct its new policy. And it's written so wonderfully in it helping to clarify uh, the position that we should have as Catholics and opening the doors to everyone, but still standing by the truth of what is a woman, or should I say who is a woman and who is a man. Also today, news has broken over the last week, and I'm surprised something like this hasn't uh, happened more prevalently or more, more commonly yet, is that a school in Colorado has actually assigned earlier this year a little girl to sleep in the same bed with a little boy, 11-year-old children. And parents are blowing the whistle on this. And it's frightening because school policies actually allow for overnight trips where parents have no idea that their kids are being sent into a system, a overnight 
adventure where they're going somewhere, for example, such as Washington, D.C., which is the case of this story. And parents are assured, hey, there won't be any inner visitation between boys and girls. They'll be on separate floors, we assure you. And then lo and behold, incognito, they have little boys dressed up as little girls showing up and sleeping in the same beds as girls. So I'll share with you a little bit more about that in a moment here on Trending. Joining me is Dr. Farnan. Dr. Teresa Farnan is on the front line addressing the issue specifically here of gender. They take a faith-based and science-based approach there at Person and Identity, where she has helped to found. And Dr. Farnan's with me today to talk about these two key stories that we really do need to be watching. One starts, Dr. Farnan, as I mentioned earlier, at St. Mary's College, just a stone's throw away from Notre Dame University that many people know in South Bend, Indiana, one of the most famous Catholic universities in the nation, if not the world. And here they are, an all-women's Catholic school, now saying we're still all-women's. However, you, if you identify and define yourself as a woman, you, if you consistently live as such, you can go ahead and apply to our school. Uh, Dr. Farnan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, as this hits at the core of not just our Catholic faith and what we preach, but the Catholic academic world as well, and pushing forth Catholic, not just uh, ideals, but Catholic truth as Jesus Christ founded. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Timory, and thank you for covering this story. I, I do, I agree with you. I think this is a really important moment, um, not only because of, you know, just the bare facts on the ground. But but I, I also think sometimes our bishops get a bad rap on in terms of people getting frustrated saying, why aren't they doing more? And here you have a bishop, Bishop Rhodes, who has crafted this amazing statement, just amazing teaching yes. statement. It's yep. charitable. He's giving the benefit of the doubt to the the uh, faculty at St. Mary's College, but um, but is absolutely crystal clear. And 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 one of the th- one of the things that jumps out at me. So the the admissions policy was actually passed in June. They at the board of trustees meeting, and then they kept it quiet for until the news broke in November. And what they were, what the college has said is that they will now consider admission of not only women, but anyone who identifies as a woman. And, you know, for the the tradition of Catholic education in our country has included not only co-ed schools, but single-sex schools, you know, boys' high schools, girls' high schools, men's colleges, you know, Notre Dame was um, an all-male college until the early 1970s, and women's colleges in particular, which which really held out as a place where women could go, they could be, um, you know, learn in an environment that would really encourage them to, to develop beautiful friendships without the social pressures of having men around and just to learn what it is from to be a woman. And, you know, typically these women's all-girls co- colleges would be staffed by nuns. So you would have this beautiful example, not only from your own mothers, but of spiritual motherhood from the nuns here. And so I think, you know, Bishop Rhodes's take on this is just in, in an effort to be fair, is that this comes from a very misguided um, sense of hospitality, looking around at the secular world where everyone is admitting transgender identifying students. And this Catholic college in particular, without any regard for without even seemingly seeing the issue here, why it would be a problem to admit someone who identifies as a woman to a woman's college, 
you know, just decided that that is the merciful thing to do and cited Pope Francis. And Bishop Rhodes' statement, like I said, was just so, um, so well done because he points mm-hmm. out, number one, that Pope Francis, who is so pastoral, has always decried this ideology of gender and has said, you know, yes, you have to accompany people, but that doesn't mean, you know, encouraging, accompanying people away from the truth. You have to accompany them towards the truth. And sometimes that can be long and it requires a lot of patience and and it can be hard work, right? So our society is doing the easy fix with these people who are suffering from a sense of discordance about their sexual identity and attempting to affirm them and then not dealing with any underlying issues they have or the Mm -hmm. backgrounds Mm -hmm. that have brought them to this place. And instead, the bishop's point is that's cheap mercy, that he uses that phrase. What an amazing, what an amazing phrase. Like that actually isn't merciful because it's you in a sense, washing your hands of this person's real needs and not taking the time to get to know them. But, but the other point he makes is that there is, and this is again, one thing I just love, there is a fundamental anthropological error here that the college is making because they seem to regard being a woman. And the phrase he uses is as a purely social category Mm -hmm. that anyone regardless of sex can inhabit. Mm -hmm. And wow, you know, that just summed up how our society views women. And it it flies against everything that the church teaches about the dignity of women. We have a whole apostolic exhortation on the dignity of women that Pope John Paul II wrote. And um, so so St. Mary's College in a very misguided attempt to be like the the secular world has really given away something important, which is this this understanding of what it is to be a woman and this, you know, creating mm-hmm. a college where you can nurture femininity and womanhood and and help these young girls who come in as as young 18-year-olds graduate as confident, mature women who are ready to make, you know, make a difference in their families and in the world. And um, so I, I, I agree. I think this is a hugely important story. There's so many issues here, whether it's like the problem with Catholic identity at so many universities or, you know, the anthropological error so many people who aren't versed in their faith are making. But again, kudos to Bishop Rhodes because, wow, the the role of the bishop is to be the, the pastor and teacher in the diocese, and that is certainly what he was doing. One of my favorite statements from Bishop Rhodes when addressing the fact that St. Mary's University right there, St. Mary's College, all women's right there next to Notre Dame is going to allow for anyone who identifies as whatever they want with regard to being a woman, but not actually being a woman, uh, into their application process. He, One of his last statements says, he said, the desire of St. Mary's College to show hospitality to people who identify as transgender is not the problem. The problem is a Catholic woman's college embracing a definition of woman that is not Catholic. And this is the problem at the core of society, Dr. Farnan, is that people are afraid, literally afraid, to embrace what is woman, what is uncomfortable, what is different about the sexes, both male and female. And we try to put men and women both inside a box, but then we also try to say, well, you can't fit within that box either. And it's absolute chaos and ambiguity for young people today. And 
all circles. You know, we could talk about different political, socioeconomic backgrounds, but I see people of all ages, especially our youth today, and they are struggling under the immense pressure to fit into the social norms of maleness and femaleness. And I see this predominantly right now with young women in particular, just mm-hmm. looking at the clothing style, Dr. Farn. I was you know, oh in Southern God. California the other day and I saw two extremes. One was nothing left to the imagination and bodies hanging out. And the other one were all of these young teenage girls whose bodies are developing in hugely baggy clothes where you have no idea what's underneath because everything is being hidden. There's discomfort. The posture is hiding. The hair is sliding down around the face. It's this lack of comfort and confidence in their bodies. And so when we have a school named after the Blessed Virgin Mary, a school in the name of the Catholic identity saying anyone can come here even if they don't identify, even if they're not a woman but identifies one, that creates chaos when it comes to what is truth at the end of the day. And that's what Bishop Kevin Rhodes' letter focuses much on, citing Pope Benedict, is how it's not merciful, it's not charitable if we do not speak truth to people who are suffering. Yes, absolutely. And and really, the, the whole role of a Catholic educational institution, a Catholic university, that as we know from ex corde ecclesia, but you know, even if you go back and you read Newman's idea of a university, is formation of young men and women intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, so that they can someday go to heaven, right? Like we're we're trying to build citizenship, future citizens, not of the United States, but of the city of God, right? And and in doing so then it has a ripple effect on all of society. But but for so for St. Mary's College to abandon, I mean they essentially abandoned that that mission with this statement because they were willing to forsake a foundational understanding of what it is to be a human person. So how can you form people in Christian anthropology if your very policy is something that's so flawed? But even it was so ill-advised too, because you think about it and you say, well, well, what were you planning on doing? Are you going to have young men rooming in the same dormitory as young women just on the basis of self-identification because they would still be using common showers. So then you have a problem for the rest of the women. And if you're not, then you're still telling that young man who identifies as a woman, you're actually not a woman. We'll let you feel like it, but we're not going to let you into these spaces. And you would hope that St. Mary's would have done the latter, but but who knows if you're if you're following these secular universities if you've lost sight of your mission as a catholic university you know all bets are off all bets are off and it's one of the reasons why i think catholic edu- catholic higher education has been struggling from the 1970s on is it's you know we have some great universities we have universities catholic universities that have developed fantastic subcultures where you go there and you can see there's this quiet cadre core group of people who are faithful to the teaching of the church and who are phenomenal, phenomenal persons in formation. But I don't, you know, if we're still choosing the board based on money or based on social connections or anything other than fidelity to the Catholic faith, then, then you're not going to have a Catholic university. And if, you're, if your people making policies are not doing it with an eye towards consonance with the Catholic faith, and if you're not bringing in the bishop 
you're not a Catholic university. So there's so many layers to this story. But I, I hear all the time when, I'm, when we're out on the road, I hear people who will just sort of reflexively say, why aren't the bishops doing something? And I think it's important mm. for people to see the bishops are doing things, whether it's Bishop Rhodes here, mm-hmm. yeah, or the bishop in Bishop McManus in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, who had a very strong policy and response, you know, or, or some of the other bishops who have had Bishop Thompson, who has been, you know, had, had you know, people on, on him. He was one of the early bishops to be targeted, Archbishop Thompson. You know, so, so the bishops are doing things, and they need our support when they, when they speak out so courageously. Yes, and we had a, a good number of our bishops here in California step up and say something recently as well, putting together a whole letter on the issue of gender as well. And if you actually read these letters from the bishops who are addressing the issue of gender— It is so compassionate that even someone who disagrees with us on the topic of gender can see the mercy, love, and respect that is so prevalent in these writings. And that's where that Christian anthropology is so fundamental to this entire conversation. Now, there are a number of things that Pope Francis has said on gender. He is a pope who has spoken the most about at a very important time when gender has been so heavily brought into question. If you're just joining me, that's Dr. Teresa Farnan from person and identity. And Dr. Farnan, one of the things that Pope Francis said in Laudatsi is it's not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel our sexual differences because it no longer knows how to confront it. In other words, it's not a healthy sign when the culture says, let's just cancel what makes up the very differences between men and women because we don't know how to handle these differences. We're uncomfortable. And just look at, you've been married, you have children, you, I believe, have you homeschooled your children? as well i've done i've done everything (laughs) but you they're in catholic schools now i mean i've done all range (laughs) but you've seen every range of maleness and femaleness the male female differences coming out within marriage within your children the dynamics between them this is just a fundamental part of our culture and as we've been walking through the theology of the body series here on trending walking through every single one of Pope St. John Paul II's catechetical talks, it's so poignant when you see the beauty of the contrast between maleness and femaleness and how that's meant to be appreciated and drawn out. And it's fascinating to me, Dr. Farnan, because it seems as if we have this dating scene where we love the differences between men and women. And soon as dating's over, or there's any idea of commitment toward marriage, suddenly those differences need to be eradicated. And we need conformity to exactly what I want as a woman or what the husband wants as a man. And And we blow out of proportion this idea of what originally wooed and attracted and interested us about the other person within the context of dating, within the context of relationships. So it's fascinating to me just to see the words of Pope Francis on gender when he says that's a bad sign when the culture is trying to erase all those things that might be uncomfortable when we collide as men and women. Right. And, and, and in that same section, he talks about how you learn to recognize yourself in the other and, and in through sexual difference, right? So when you're married, you learn more about yourself by encountering your husband who is different from you and yet part of this tremendous project that the two of you have embarked on when you enter into the covenant of marriage and you begin your family, right? And you learn things about yourself as a person. You appreciate your common humanity. You understand your differences. You understand why you need each other. You understand why your children need both a mother and a father. I mean, it's really beautiful. And isn't it amazing that the church for so long is caricatured as the, uh, you know, as a group of, 
of prudish people who hate sex. Mm-hmm. And, and now here we are. We're the last defenders of human embodiment because we're saying, no, sex matters. Being male or female matters. Being a mother or a father matters, right? And that, that, that the human body has this sacredness and this dignity that makes it, it, it has its own ecology that we have to cherish just as we're called to cherish the environment around us. And, and again, wow, like it was always there in the writings of Pope Paul mm-hmm. VI, but yes. just caricatured for centuries. Mm-hmm. But I will say too, that what I'm seeing increasingly is that some of the Christian communities are really looking to the Catholic Church because our bishops have been speaking out forcefully. And so when a bishop when a bishop issues something strong like this, you see not just the Catholics saying like, okay, this is clear teaching, I understand, but you'll see Protestants saying, good for him, he's mm-hmm. speaking out and taking notes. And, and I even had the experience once of going out and speaking on this issue and someone came up to me afterwards and said, and I, I just went through basic church teaching, right? It's not anything I made up. I just like, Re, you know, I'm like the retail seller. I just like repeat the message basically and, and, and bring it to people in sort of a condensed form so they can understand it. And he came up to me and said, that was amazing. Where did you get that? And I said, well, th- this is the teaching of our church. But he was coming from a tradition that didn't have the same systematic theology. So again, when you see it like put together, whether it's the statements of the bishops in California, or we've had so many statements that bishops mm-hmm. have put out and they keep yes. putting out not only policy policies, but these beautiful explanations. Yeah. And, and Mm. wow, what a gift. I I really think the bishops in the United States, in fact, are, are, are leading the way for the rest of the world because they're, Mm. they, because of the pressures of the culture, they have had to be crystal clear and precise in their teaching. Now, when I see letters such as Bishop Rhodes, it's a reminder for all of us to stand on truth, to dive into it, and to joyfully spread that truth. I'm going to post a link to the letter from Bishop Rhodes. It's five pages, a very easy read, and very profound in helping you. If maybe you've had a hard time understanding how to articulate the church's position on gender, it is very helpful for doing just that. And that's what I love about church teaching. It's always consistent. It's always freshly spoken to the current culture, saying the same thing over and over again in a way that the culture can understand. So I hope you'll check that out. You can follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E to find the link to that or in the episode notes for today's show. That's Dr. Teresa Farden, author and moral philosopher. You can find her at personandidentity.com. That's personandidentity.com. It's a Catholic and scientific approach to gender ideology. I'll be right back with Dr. Farnan diving into a school that assigned a little girl to sleep in the same bed as a little boy without letting the parents know. The little girl had to call her parents from the bathroom as she's there staying in her trip at her trip in Washington, D.C. Stay with me. And by the way, put your shoes out, little kids. Stockings out as well. My stockings are going out tonight because tomorrow is the feast day of St. Nicholas, also known as Santa Claus. More on that in a moment, but check out the podcast available now on how to celebrate St. Nicholas Day. All 
things Advent here on Trending, and tomorrow is the feast day of St. Nicholas. It's time to make the Catholic connection that our Catholic faith is behind all things Christmas, including Santa Claus. So I actually did a show yesterday on how to celebrate St. Nicholas's Day. I hope you'll listen to it. It's in the episode notes. We'll post to it on social media now. But put your shoes out. Put your stockings out, kids, because tomorrow is a feast day of St. Nicholas. It's a great time to see what St. Nicholas might bring ahead of Christmas. And I know our elf on the shelf in our house actually arrives on St. Nicholas' Feast Day. So I have a lot to do tonight. We're phasing into Christmas decorations, which I'm glad, but there's a lot to do today. So kick off Advent with us. Join us every day here on Trending, Journeying to Bethlehem and the Birth of Christ by preparing the way each day on Trending. Joining me now is Dr. Teresa Farnan. She's an author and moral philosopher from Person and Identity, a Catholic and scientific approach to gender ideology. You can find her work at personandidentity.com. Now, Dr. Farnan, you sent me a story that I had not heard of yet. My jaw just about dropped. As a parent, and even if you're not a parent, this is clear-cut black and white just wrong. A school assigned a little girl who is going on her fifth grade trip to Washington, D.C. and in Philadelphia to a room with supposedly three other little girls in which she was supposed to share a bed with one of the little girls. This 11-year-old kid from Colorado who goes to public school there in Colorado ends up heading over from her Jefferson County school. And the parents are assured time and time again that the girls and boys would be in separate rooms and on different floors. They were even, it was confirmed, um, told by chaperones and in documents that they would not be allowed to visit between the boys and the girls' room. Well, here was what happens. The little girl ends up heading out on the trip. Now, her mom went on the trip too, but wasn't a chaperone. She's there on the trip, and she's introduced to the kids who she'll be rooming with, two of which are kids from her school. One of the children is from another school. And this presenting little girl dressed with long hair and in girls' clothes, then that night reveals to the other kids that that child is actually a little boy, to which point this 11-year-old child goes into the bathroom, locks herself in, and calls her mom to tell her that she's uncomfortable sleeping in a bed with a little boy. To which, thankfully, the mom went on the trip, even though she wasn't a chaperone, and they went downstairs to the lobby. They were able to talk and start working through things. Mom had no idea her daughter would be on the same in the same room, yet alone same bed with a little boy. And the school, we'll talk a little bit more about the details, uh, didn't handle the situation very well, yet this kind of went according to their public school policy that they have there in place. So we'll dive more into it. But Dr. Farn, I want to set out the landscape for this story that is just blowing my mind because I think this is where you have parents, people, people who aren't parents on both sides of the political spectrum, regardless of religion and even regardless of their views about gender, where this suddenly sits very uncomfortably for, I think, most people. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, and we can dive into a little bit more of the story as well. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a nightmare for every child involved, right? Like, absolute nightmare for this kid, the young kid who's struggling, this young boy yes, who's struggling yes. with, with his own identification for these girls, for the roommates, for the parents. And I'll tell you what, this has been going on since 2017, at yep. least. Yep. So Before that then, was yep. the first time we had heard, we've been contacted by parents, 
you know, whether it's the band trip where they find out that a trans identifying male is going to be put in with a with a with females or trans identifying female being put in with males. This is going on. And the only difference now is that thanks to organizations like ADF and and the really active work on ter- in terms of some of these parent education groups public school parents now are realizing they don't have to put up with it and so they're bringing legal action because i think before when this happened parents didn't know what to do they were quiet about it yes. they 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 didn't feel like they could even protest about yeah. it yeah. but but what a nightmare and thank thank heaven that little girl's parents were there. Yes. But the resolution, yeah. if you read the story, the, the way it's that the good. school... It's not good uh-uh. because... It's worse. Moved, they moved him in with another little girl and told yeah. everyone they weren't allowed to tell. So here, here's what's interesting because the whole thing is a massive cover-up and it's manipulating children. Like you said, the little kids were told they can't say what's going on. It sounds like potentially uh, the school principal or the person who was there might not have actually known that this was a little boy because another school sent, you know, they had a handful of schools going together and this little boy was put into their room and the little boy, they end up actually at the time they're at the hotel as they're trying to resolve the situation that same night. They end up calling the little boy's parents and saying, basically asking, is this little boy, is this little girl actually a little boy? And the parents say, yes, but no one's supposed to know. No one was supposed to know on this trip. And so this a whole veil of secrecy is continuing to be pushed. And now suddenly they place this little boy with a different little girl in a different bed now. And yeah. that parent, those parents aren't told, those kids aren't told. And the whole thing is just veiled under secrecy. And like you said, Dr. Farnan, this poor little boy, who's struggling with his identity, has adults encouraging and putting him in an environment to be scrutinized, to be uncomfortably shuffled around. This is an 11-year-old child. I feel bad for the little girl who's uncomfortable, but I feel bad for the little boy who's now being shuffled around from room to room, and his parents are saying, hey, keep this a secret that you're actually a little boy sleeping over with little girls. At some point, someone would have noticed. I'm sorry if if you're if you're sharing a room with other people, some like I, 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 what were the parents thinking? But 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 again, this is this the the message to these young girls is your feelings don't matter. The feelings of the biological male who wants to inhabit your social space, as Bishop Rose put it, that matters. And and this is going to continue. Parents need to realize. The public school systems, it, starting from, from, from 2016 on, really, have been completely captured in the sense that they're afraid of litigation from trans-identifying plaintiffs and their families. And so they will mm-hmm. always favor the trans-identifying student. And they will never, never come down on the side. Well, I shouldn't say never. There are instances where we see school superintendents saying enough is enough. One of the instances was the horrific field hockey game in Massachusetts this last month where a trans-identifying male, biological male student playing on the woman's team took a slap shot and knocked out the teeth of a female player. And the school superintendent, to his credit, said, enough, enough is enough. We are not playing any school that has a biological male. We are done. And the same thing happened in, in, in um, I, I believe it was North Carolina, where a young woman was 
so seriously injured last year from a concussion from a, a, a male, a trans-identifying male student who spiked the ball into her face and left her with a concussion that she's still struggling with. And there again, the school superintendent said, we, are not, we, are, we can't play that team. We will not play yeah. a team with boys. But, but those instances are remarkable mm-hmm. because these, otherwise we're seeing the public school system cave and cave, you know, like not respect the feelings and the need for privacy of these young girls. So I, I, you know, I, I did a lot of research on public education. It has been like this for almost a decade and parents need to understand. I, I, I understand that there are some instances, some instances where parents are not able to move their kids into a Catholic school. But if you have your children in a public school, you need to be scrutinizing. You need to be going along on these school trips. You need to be watching it every single turn. And might I just jump in and say we have to be careful with our Catholic schools as well. Catholic schools are trying to figure out how to navigate this. And I'm hearing of schools, Catholic schools, specific instances of children I know who are coming up against the same exact type of situation. Overnight trips, cover-ups, them changing and claiming that there was a different chaperone and people didn't know. And even, you know... Our, our Catholic schools, sometimes they don't, they have an agenda, some of the people running things, or there's a gatekeeper. I know the superintendent at one Catholic school a system here in Southern California, he had a gatekeeper where everything wasn't making it to his desk, and he wasn't able to address all the situations because the truth was being hidden, and how these little kids were being exposed to extreme LGBTQ ideologies by placing mm-hmm. certain kids in unsafe areas, and literally it, being engaged in with sexual abuse in these situations and it's just astonishing to me that you suddenly bring the word gender or homosexuality into the conversation and clear safe healthy policies are thrown out the door. I'll never forget, Mm -hmm. Dr. Farnan, I was asked to come and speak in a public school system uh, down in San Diego, California, and the specific school district I was speaking at had an abstinence-only mandate that was, they only taught abstinence, that was it. And so I go in to speak and I'm talking and being vetted ahead of time. And they say, oh, well, we, and this was over 10 years ago. They said, we also have some transgender um, youth. How will you approach and present information that is conducive for them and their lifestyle? And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, I thought this was an abstinence only education system here when it came to talking about sex. Why is it that we are singling out and making anyone feel different or uncomfortable for their sexual lifestyle when really we're calling all children to abstinence? And they were just fumbling backward. Like, oh, well, I mean, and I said, no, I know exactly what you mean. You're saying because of a different identity, we need to single people out in front of the rest of the class. And they were astounded. Like, they didn't know what to say in that situation. But I said, no, this is what happens when we single out anyone who's living by a different identity. It doesn't matter what your viewpoint is. You're trying to say we're not going to follow a policy and we're also going to isolate and humiliate children by trying to take this in a different direction just for one or two people that everyone knows we're talking about in a class here. And this is the same instance here. We're making people who are struggling with their identity isolated and singled out rather than giving key help that they may need to address underlying mental health challenges that are occurring. Yes. And all of this is going on as the rest of literally like countries in Europe are changing 
course on this. There was an article about, a, a, you know, within the past month by one of the clinicians at the leading gender clinic in Finland who said, hey, I instituted all these protocols and I can tell you this is harming children. And so Finland discontinued transitioning children. So, so here you have these young kids who are struggling anyway, they're put in impossible situations because girls don't want boys in their spaces for reasons of safety, modesty, privacy, you name it. But in addition, when you affirm a child, you're pushing them into this medicalized lifestyle that is going to lead to physical and emotional harm. So there's nothing compassionate about it. The compassionate thing is to help someone understand why they hate their bodies. Why do you feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. as either male or female? And to, to, you know, to help them to navigate it. That's what we've done for, for centuries. That's what we need to do. But that takes time. That takes effort. That takes a solid understanding of who you are as a human being, which it seems like our culture is lost. And in the meantime, our, our girls are paying the price. But, but I will say, and this sort of connects it back to, the, to the, the, the first segment, if you are a parent, you have got to be willing to speak up. God bless these parents for filing a uh, legal yes. action against the school district. You have to speak up. If you have your kids at St. If you have daughters at St. Mary's College, you should be lighting up the switchboard at the college, the, the provost's office and the president's office, complaining about this, saying, I sent my daughter to a to an all-girls school and now you're making it a co-ed school, but mm -hmm. by stealth, right? Yeah. Like, and, like, yeah. Yep. And honor her choice, right? Like honor women's choices. We're going backward and infringing on women's rights today because of this. Right, right. And and the big thing too is like, again, you know, don't be afraid to speak out. This harms kids. This is harmful to your children. Your Our children, our girls in particular, need to see us speaking up and protecting them, being willing to, to, to risk social stigma. If you read that story in the Daily Signal, the, um, the young girl initially, even after she complained to her mother, went back into the room with a trans-identifying child because she didn't want to make a scene, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have 11 years old. Mm -hmm. These girls are so vulnerable. We need to protect our children from this. We need to be the ones who are willing to say, listen, I've got this. I am going to make sure no one can, no one is going to put you in a situation that could be, that could be even, even embarrassing for you. Right. But, or harmful or a violation of your modesty and your privacy. Like we've got to be the ones who are speaking up for our kids, but it's going to take a lot of vigilance on the part of parents. Amen. And that's the truth. And I was even just thinking when you were speaking about a video that went around trending earlier this summer about a parent who said, this is why I don't let my kids go on sleepovers. And they shared all of this information about sexual abuse and you name it. It's a fascinating a story that went viral. But at the end of the day, what happened is one kid wasn't until she was 18 had ever been on a, been to a sleepover. She turns 18. That's the thing she wants. And as she's sitting there around the circle and people are saying, oh, it's your first sleepover. Stories just start flooding out about abuse these kids experience during sleepovers. And I share this because it's startling as a parent. Uh, it's overwhelming. It calls you into question and anything you may have chosen as a parent. But what it points to is the need, as you said, Dr. Farn, to be the gatekeeper of your child, to care and protect their modesty, um, to care and protect their innocence and how fundamental this is in stories when we're talking about co-ed situations or even same-sex sex scenarios in a culture that has lost sight of the beauty and vision of the human person. And 
that's what I love that you guys do, Dr. Farnan, at Person and Identity. That's Dr. Teresa Farnan here on Trending, taking a Catholic and scientific approach to gender ideology. You can find her work at personandidentity.com. That's personandidentity.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on Trending. Coming up, what is Advent Wreath? What does everything symbolize from the shape of the leaves to the color to the shape of it? We will dive into everything coming up on the Advent Wraith, but also make sure you set out your shoes. Tomorrow is St. Nicholas Day, so shoes or stockings. Don't forget to check out the podcast. It's up now. Listen to the episode on how to celebrate St. Nicholas Day. Just head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast. It is there and it's not too late to dive into some celebration for tomorrow. with an Advent wreath on your table at home. Perhaps you see it at Mass. You wonder, hey, it's there, but no one really acknowledges it other than that first initial blessing. If you happen to go to 7 a.m. Mass or whatever the earliest Mass is at your church on Sunday, and then suddenly each candle's lit, but nothing's really said about it. Well, the Advent candles help to demonstrate the strong contrast between darkness and light, which is an important biblical image. And what's interesting is that right as we head into the Christmas season coming up on the 25th, there's this point even in the, the way of the sun and the moon where we start to see the days start to increase again. The days start to get longer after they had been shortening and shortening after the time of John the Baptist coming. It's fascinating as you, as you look at kind of the liturgical calendar, there's this difference between heading back earlier in the year, I believe it's June, where the days lengthen, preparing the way for Christ. And it, it's so fascinating as we see this contrast, even just in the way God has designed nature, centering around Christmas, and to see that imagery of the stark contrast between darkness and light, with Jesus being the light of the world that dispels the darkness of sin. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the Advent wreath helps us to spiritually contemplate the great drama of salvation history. It is rich with incredible symbolism everywhere around the Advent wreath. You are the light of the world, and you are called, like Christ, by the grace of Christ, to let your light shine before others. And this is what we hear in the calling of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So how does this relate even deeper to the Advent wreath? We'll start to look at some of the symbols. First of all, a circle. A circle without beginning or end is the shape of the wreath itself. 
A circle represents a handful of things. One, that we're made for eternal life and that we're meant to return back to God. There's a Latin saying, I can't remember what it is, but essentially it means everything comes from God and is meant to return to God. And that this is the core of our understanding of theology, the understanding of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that God is symbolized in this Advent wreath of as total unending, unconditional love. And if he gave everything to us and we recognize that, we are meant to return everything back to him. And so that very shape of the circle of the Advent wreath points to the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, that we are made for eternal life. Now, if you look at numbers, numbers have a major significance in the Advent wreath. Traditionally, we have four candles which are lit around the Advent wreath with one pink one, which is a little girl. I love the pink one. Um, And with that, each candle represents a theme, a virtue, in fact. You have the four candles, the first one being hope, peace, and you have Gaudaute Sunday, which is joy, that pink candle, and finally love. And with that, these candles, at least in our home, I like to take that virtue, and as we light the candle, we pray for that virtue. We talk about what it is. These are concepts that are pretty big concepts that need to be contemplated often. That's why we're diving to hope every day this week on Trending. Peace will be next week, and so on and so forth. But with those colors come numbers as well. And those numbers in the cal- in the candles are fascinating. Each candle, totaling four, represents a thousand years, with all four candles representing 4,000 years, which are meant to symbolize the time of the world waiting for the Savior from Adam and Eve to Jesus. Now, some people love to add in a fifth candle on Christmas Day being a white candle that it symbolizes the purity of Christ. And it's often brought in on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It's not mandatory, but it's another element of the Advent wreath that people love to add in. Now, the violet purple, whatever you want to call it, is key to the liturgical seasons of Lent and Advent. It represents a time of prayer and penance and sacrifice. At the heart of the Advent season is penance, sacrifice, and ultimately conversion. John the Baptist is an incredible, incredible aid and guide for the season of anticipation. Just the word Advent itself is meant to lead us to understanding that it's a season of preparation. We wait in our own darkness and enter into the hopefulness of Christ through his grace. And some other neat traditions, this one I learned last year, the four candles also have other symbolism that were thrown on them in addition to the four virtues and the 4,000 years of waiting for salvation between Adam and Eve and Christ. The other is, is the four themes of the candles. One being the first candle, the prophet's candle, a reminder that Jesus is coming. The second candle also referred to as the Bethlehem candle, reminds us of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem to enter into that journey. The third Sunday of Advent is symbolized by the shepherd's candle, reminding us of the joy the world experienced when Jesus Christ himself came. And fourth, that fourth Sunday of Advent is the angel's candle, representation of the message of the angels of peace on earth and goodwill toward men through this tiny Christ child. 
but a tiny Christ child, remember, who later will be crucified, will die and rise again, and that through his conquering death, we come about to embrace and have life. So here's what's neat. You don't have to have an Advent wreath in order to enjoy this great tradition. You can enjoy it by pointing it out at Mass, or maybe you bring it into your home, putting it on your table or putting it on a coffee table somewhere. You can even make your own wreath. I've actually done this in the past of just taking um, greens and reds and pine cones and putting it all together to make your own wreath. I think these are actually some of the best. I've even bought some fresh ones in the past and put it right smack in the middle of my table. But real wreaths smell really nice, or you can have ones that aren't real. The last few years I've gone with a not-so-real wreath. I might make one this year. I want to put it out tonight. We took out the Shining Light Dolls children's advent wreath for my daughter, and she's been loving playing with it. We'll post a link on social media to that. But I want to talk about some of the key elements in the Advent wreath that also have symbolism. The evergreens are meant to remind us of eternal life in Christ. The pointed holly leaves and berries are a representation of the crown of thorns from the passion of Jesus and his precious blood. So those pointy holly leaves and the berries with the contrast of the red and the points for the crowns. Pine cones have always been used by artists to symbolize enlightenment, rebirth, and resurrection. So the Catholic Church has actually always used pine cones in iconography as well to symbolize Christ's resurrection. I'll post a link to some great Advent prayers that you can pray for the time when you light those new candles of the Advent Wraith. But I hope you've enjoyed this content on the Advent Wraith. You can bring it into your home or have greater understanding of it as you look to the Advent Wraith there in your church. Coming up tomorrow, we'll unpack the life of St. Nicholas. So put up those shoes and stockings tonight. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday, I'm joined by Father Tim Grumbach as we dive into the life of St. Nicholas hope and journeying with St. Joseph through Advent to the celebration of Christmas. So be sure to join us every day here on Trending, unpacking the great tradition of the Advent season as we grow together, preparing the way for our Lord. Join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.